2: The opioid crisis in the United States now rivals the Vietnam War in how many Americans have been killed. After calling it a national emergency for months, the president has declared it a public health emergency, a distinction with a difference. It's Friday, October 27th. Aaron, how old were you the first time that you used an opioid uh, 14. 14. What kind of teenager were you then? Describe to me a little bit.
3: Um, I was a athlete. I played a lot of sports. I played basketball, football, and baseball.
2: Aaron Pope lives outside Lexington,
3: Kentucky. I was not a bad kid. My dad always taught. My dad was a preacher. Hmm. Um, so, you know, he taught me to be well-mannered and, and well-behaved and respect your elders and stuff like that.
2: And were you a, a happy kid, would you say?
3: Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly.
2: So tell me about that first time.
3: Well, where I'm from, people sit and hang out in a parking lot after hmm. school, and and uh, I had a friend. We were sitting in his truck uh, in the parking lot just hanging out with a bunch of people, like teenagers do. Mm-hmm. This kid happened to uh, have a hydrocodone. He, he was like, Hey, man, um, have you ever done a pain pill before? And I was like, no man I haven't ever really uh, messed with that stuff he busted it up he crushed the pill up and was like you gotta try this and there it was so why not it made me feel excited like this was bold and new and and cool and and not only that feeling but the feeling of the opioid itself which gave me this like I have arrived moment and um within maybe 3 months uh I graduated to a, to a heavier substance and that was the one that really that really changed things. Hmm. I had another friend that uh, had been doing pain pills for a while. Uh we were just talking one night and uh he he said uh you should try oxycodone and I was like, "Well, what is that? What are those things?" And uh he said, "Get $30, and I'll show you. About an hour into it, there were deer standing on the side of the road that we were driving down because so we were just driving in, in, in the back roads. Mm-hmm. And I remember jumping out of the car, and I, I would venture to say that it was still moving a little bit, <laughs> wow. and uh, chasing these deer through the field. like It just made me like I was just like the Incredible Hulk. Uh, euphoria mm-hmm. is what I would use to to describe it. That was the moment that I knew that these were the greatest things since sliced bread.
2: So how did you start getting the oxycodone?
3: That's a very interesting story. This was during the time where Florida did not have a way to track how many narcotics prescriptions people were obtaining from Mm -hmm. doctors. So at this point in time, You could go to Florida and get a doctor to write you a prescription for 320, 30 milligram oxycodone. That's a lot of pills. And yes, and you could do that three different times. Mm. So you're talking about 1,000 pills. And then you could come back to Kentucky and sell them for $30 a piece, no problem. It's a term called doctor shopping. Mm -hmm. Back in this time, it was oxycodone galore. Back in those days, you never had trouble finding Oxycontin or Oxycodone.
2: So what happens after that?
3: Around 16, and 17, uh, I started selling to my classmates at school. Then I, I, I dropped out of school because I, I thought it was a fantastic idea to just pretty much do this full time because I was making quite a bit of money. How much would you and, say? Let's see, 50 times 30. A day.
2: Wow. You were making fifteen hundred dollars up to fifteen hundred dollars a
3: day. Yeah, yeah.
2: Selling pills at thirty dollars a pill.
3: Yes. Every day. In the town next the next town over. Um, I would say outside of this factory and wait for a second shift to come out and third shift to come in. Hmm. And uh I would catch those guys, a lot of those factory workers were on pills and would take pills to keep themselves up at night or or whatever they wanted to do. And I would just sit outside of that factory and just kill it. They would buy most of it. So pretty much uh, the large majority of people in this time were were, were using a lot of drugs, um, pills, just pills. I think people justified it a lot easier than they would cocaine or heroin or, or anything. Just simply because uh, it was a pill, they were manufactured and they were pills and they were mm. prescribed to people every day. I think people would use that justification to justify them using. Is it. Is that how
2: you felt yourself? It's like how how different is this than than taking an an Advil or taking the pill? That yeah, the, the doctor. There's something about a pill that feels okayish.
3: I can yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. the... Uh, that um, it was just so normalized at that point in time for everyone that was around me that was doing this. The streets were just littered with it. Um, it was it was an epidemic, and people that you would never think were doing this were doing this. This is parents of people, parents of my friends, if not uh, you, you know uh, their brothers, their older brothers mm-hmm. or their, their sisters. Um, yeah, everyone did this. Um, even even people who didn't do drugs. Eventually, did this um, because it was so profitable. My mother uh, eventually uh, jumped on that train.
2: And which train did your mom jump on?
3: Uh, the distribution of narcotics.
2: And how did she become introduced to it?
3: Uh, I would say, I would say it was through me seeing how profitable this was. She had a lot of things to pay for. My grandmother was in poor health, and there was a lot of you know, financial strife there. So uh, she did what she thought was a rational idea, uh, which, we, which we now know was not. Um, and she went to Florida herself and, and brought, brought narcotics back, and, and I helped her distribute them.
2: So did she know, your mother, that you were using these drugs when this started for her?
3: Yes, yes, I had overdosed a couple times by that point.
2: Jeez. So, do, do you remember, Aaron, the first time that your mom talked to you about oxycodone differently? What I mean is, you know, when she went from being your mom and and probably concerned about you and your relationship yeah, to this to to
3: hey, let's let's make a lot of money selling drugs. Right, I do remember. Uh, her telling me that, uh, she was thinking about going to Florida hmm. and I, I couldn't tell you how ecstatic I was to hear that. <laughs> I just knew I could manipulate my mother into giving wow. free drugs.
2: Um, so you'd, but, gotten to, uh, you'd gotten to a point where nothing about that troubled you?
3: No, no, not at all. Not at all. It was fantastic news. It was, it was, it was great news. Hmm. but it is no fault to my mother because my mother was a fantastic mother when I was growing up. She never missed a ball game that I had, and there were mm-hmm. many of those um she was uh, she was there every single holiday and and then uh, not to say that it was just ball games and holidays like she was obviously there a lot mm-hmm. um She would show up for 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 meetings with the school um she was She was a normal good mother
2: Aaron, how do you make sense of people's parents doing this? Did you grow up in a community? with a lot of friends whose parents needed money?
3: Yes, yeah, it, I mean this is like this is the recession. This is 2008, 2009, 10, 11. Yes, for sure. This is absolutely. This was for financial gain.
2: Um and it sounds like once this place is so awash in drugs that there's really no possibility of anybody really running out of it because no just...
3: no no until it wasn't until they sh- actually shut the florida down and and, and fasper was implemented which was the tracking of prescriptions narcotics and it, it really cut it in half it didn't stop it but it cut it in half
2: and was that a big deal for yeah
3: that was that was a huge deal a lot of people started then just going to one doctor instead of multiple, mm-hmm. um, but they were still going nonetheless. There were still doctors out there willing to write prescriptions, and by that time, uh, prices of pills had had jumped way up, and they were forty five dollars a piece. Wow! And and that's why heroin is as popular as it is right now. Why? It's a direct result of, of oxy and and, and oxycotton and oxycodone and methadone being the supply of that being cut in half hmm. and the street value of that jumping, almost doubling. And now heroin's cheaper and more potent. Hmm. So in any drug addict's mind, that's the best idea ever, is to just switch to
2: heroin. So a bunch of people, including many of them in the town where you grew up, get addicted Mm -hmm. to what are essentially legal drugs, perhaps illegally acquired, and that gets taken away from them through the shortages and these changes in the regulations, and then they turn to this cheaper, but more potent and deadly illegal drug.
3: Absolutely. That is an extremely accurate characterization of it. Hmm. I would say that's 90% of the people I know, that's their story.
2: So can you tell me about the, the overdose that started to be the beginning of the end for you when it came to these drugs?
3: The night of my overdose, the last one that I had... I was up all night, um, cocaine and heroin. I had taken the last bit, um, around seven o'clock that morning and, uh, drove to my dad's house because I was going to go work with my dad that day. And I walked in the kitchen and, uh, I just collapsed and went into convulsions again. And, and my grandmother walked in and cause she heard my body hit the ground and my dad was there, and the way you hear him describe it was I'm, I'm just foaming, um, you know, erratically out of my mouth. And my grandmother's in the chair, and she's screaming and crying, calling 911, and my brother comes out, and they're holding me in the kitchen floor. The next thing I know, I'm, I'm waking up, and the ambulance is there, and uh, my dad's got me in his lap. My dad's a big guy. Um, he's 6'5", he's um, about 250, and uh, he has he has his 22-year-old son in his lap just sitting on the couch, just, just rocking back and forth and, and crying. And, and I had no idea what just happened. Um, and I looked at him, I was like, what is going on? He said, well, you just, I think you just overdosed. <laughs> I'm still denying my use uh, to my dad at this point. I said, that, that doesn't make any sense. I haven't used any drugs, though I had been using <laughs> drugs all night. Um, it seems and-
2: like it would have been impossible at this point for him to ignore the problem. Oh, yes.
3: Oh, yes. By that point, I had stolen everything that wasn't nailed down. He would find syringes in my pockets of my jeans all the times when I would stay there. Um, it was just undeniable, um, but I would still try.
2: So what happens after that?
3: Um, after that, my dad kicked me out and told me that I wasn't allowed back at the house. Hmm. Um, it was crippling the entire family. My my substance abuse alone was crippling the entire family. It had came to the point where uh um I didn't have anywhere else to go and I ended up um sleeping anywhere that I could.
2: I have to say your and, your uh, life at this point sounds
3: It's miserable. Yeah, it it goes on like that for a while. It it gets to the point where um uh I had sold the shoes off of my feet for um for crack. And I was uh, shooting crack behind a dumpster in an uh, apartment complex that uh, where I'm from. Um, that's where that's that's where it got.
2: Hmm. How do you finally stop doing these drugs? It sounds like selling your shoes off the bottom of your feet and shooting up behind a. A dumpster is a version of rock bottom.
3: I just remember thinking that I just want a break from this, from this insanity. So there was a a bed open at a detox facility. And the atmosphere of this treatment facility was unlike any other treatment facility that I had ever been in. Everyone that was working on staff was a recovered drug addict or alcoholic. And um, I would say the catalyst for this changing of events would be another guy looking at me and telling me how he had felt the way that I had felt and used the way that I had used. Mm -hmm. But now, where he was homeless, he's now a homeowner,
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and he's a contributing member of society, and he shows up for work every single day, and he is happy, and he's free.
2: How long has it been, Aaron, since you last
3: used? August 7th, 2015.
2: Congratulations.
3: Thank you. I appreciate that.
2: Are you surprised that that you're still alive?
3: Absolutely. By by everyone's standards I should be dead.
2: And have you seen a lot of people who actually do die from this?
3: I attend the funeral about once every six months, at least.
2: Of the people that you work with, that you grew up with?
3: Yeah, all around. They're dying left and right.
2: A few months after Aaron stopped using opioids, his mother told him she wanted help too. Aaron took her to the same treatment facility that helped him recover. She has been clean ever since. We'll be right back.
1: Every meal we eat has a history and a future. And on Next Bite, a new podcast from Chobani, we'll hear from changemakers in the food world, like Native American chef Sean Sherman.
0: I want the next generation of kids to have better access out there, and I want to see a lot of education around why their indigenous ancestors' knowledge is so important when it comes to that connection of the world, the connection to the plants.
1: Hear how Sean is revitalizing indigenous foods on Next Bite, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: As you all know from personal experience, families, communities and citizens across our country are currently dealing with the worst drug crisis in American history and even, if you really think about it, world history. Julie, what did we expect President Trump to do on Thursday?
1: Well, President Trump has been talking uh, for months about the fact that he considers the opioid crisis a national emergency.
2: Julie Davis covers the White House for The Times.
1: And so we expected for him to either announce or actually sign a declaration that this is a national emergency, which would then unleash federal funding and... All sorts of authorities for the federal government to deal with a crisis that's killed tens of thousands of people in the last year.
0: We can be the generation that ends the opioid epidemic. We can do it.
2: So with that in mind, what ended up happening
0: on Thursday?
1: So President Trump actually didn't declare it a national emergency Mm. in the way that people expected him to do.
0: That is why, effective today, my administration is officially declaring the opioid crisis a national public health emergency under federal law.
1: He directed his, his administration, rather, to declare it a public health emergency, which is still a designation that is designed to have the symbolic impact of saying, hey, guys, this is a big problem, we need to turn the resources of the federal government to solving it. But it doesn't have the same sorts of impacts that declaring a national emergency would have in terms of urgent emergency federal funding that automatically gets unlocked when that kind of a declaration is made.
2: What are the big differences between these two kinds of declarations? And why is it significant that he chose one over the other?
1: So... If you're declaring a national emergency, you're basically saying that this is an emergency that requires the government to spend emergency funds in a rapid manner to address this issue. If you're instead calling it a public health emergency, that is a different legal authority that essentially says you should allow the relaxation, perhaps, of rules and regulations to be able to deal with this. You should direct existing grant programs to deal with this problem, but it doesn't in and of itself provide any money. And any Mm -hmm. money that's going to be spent uh, will have to be allocated by Congress in a separate action.
2: And what do we know, Julie, about why the administration chose to do it this way?
1: You know, when you talk to White House officials about this, they all believe that a national emergency designation was actually the wrong mechanism Mm. for this particular crisis because there are so many demands already on FEMA money because of storms And other disasters that have occurred in the last several months, essentially, when you're declaring a national emergency for a hurricane or for a flood, eventually the hurricane passes Mm. and the flood is over. But looking at the opioid crisis, it doesn't show any signs of ending anytime soon. So there there was a worry that they were essentially signing themselves up for a completely open-ended commitment of federal resources now They would argue that the measures that will result from this public health declaration are actually going to be a lot more impactful.
0: I am directing all executive agencies to use every appropriate emergency authority to fight the opioid crisis. So now
2: that the president has declared this a public health emergency, what is he asking his administration to do about it?
1: He's asking all of the agencies to look at their programs and figure out ways in which they can help combat the opioid epidemic
0: the US Postal Service and the Department of Homeland Security are strengthening the inspection of packages coming into our country to hold back the flood of cheap and deadly fentanyl a synthetic opioid manufactured in China and 50 times stronger than heroin and in two weeks I will be in China with President Xi and I will mention this as a top priority.
1: And there's also going to be, interestingly, and we've seen this in the past with drug problems uh, that this country has experienced, uh, a big advertising campaign.
0: This was an idea that I had where if we can teach young people not to take drugs, just not to take them, when I see friends of mine that are having difficulty with not having that drink at dinner, where it's literally almost impossible for them to stop, I say to myself, I can't even understand it. Why would that be difficult? But we, un- we understand why it is difficult. The fact is, if we can teach young people and people generally not to start, it's really, really easy not to take them. And I think that's going to end up being our most important thing. Really tough, really big, really great advertising. So we get to people before they start so they don't have to go through the problems of what people are going through.
2: The president seemed to suggest that personal restraint was possible and could keep people from succumbing to this epidemic. But is, is that the way people in public health see it and talk about it?
1: Not at all. Um, this is part of the reason that there were a lot of critics of the president's announcement because there are many in the uh, advocacy world and in the medical field who say that nothing is going to change with regard to the opioid crisis when you're dealing with substances that are so, so highly addictive, until we get to a place where treatment is paramount and you're gearing all of your resources toward that.
2: So what happens now? Is the administration in a position to actually address this crisis?
1: Well, one of the reasons it took so long for President Trump to make this declaration, he talked about it for months, is that he doesn't actually have the people in place Mm. to craft or frankly carry out a anti-opioid strategy, the the, uh, nominee who he had chosen to be the drug czar, the head of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, uh, had to withdraw last week because it was revealed that he had sided with basically the pharmaceutical industry on a measure um, that was designed to uh, beef up law enforcement's ability to keep opioids off the black market. Hmm. Um, And that came just a few weeks after Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Resigned over his use of private jets funded by the taxpayers to take both official and personal trips. And President Trump has yet to nominate someone for either position. And of course, when he does, it could be months before they're ever confirmed. So it's unclear who's going to fill that void and who actually is going to be in charge of carrying out what the president laid out as his vision for this today.
2: Julie, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Here's what else you need to know today.
3: This was an enormous step in the direction toward getting comprehensive tax reform and tax cuts for middle-class families over the line into law.
2: On Thursday, congressional Republicans passed a budget deal that allows them to move forward with a plan to cut federal taxes by as much as $1.5 trillion without a single Democratic vote. The measure, opposed by every Democrat in the House contains language that would shield a tax bill from a Democratic filibuster, meaning it could pass the Senate with just 51 votes in a chamber where Republicans control 52 seats. Democratic House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi described the Republican characterization of the plan as being for the middle class as a con.
0: What the Republicans did today
2: was to give uh, an open path Uh, to this assault, an assault. It's a rip-off, a shakedown, a looting of the middle class. We want to do tax reform. We want to do it in a way that is fair, that has simplification, that has growth, that reduces the deficit, creates good-paying jobs, and keeps America number one. Instead, we have a, a budget that they put forth that does not do that. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Lindsay Garrison, Rachel Quester, Annie Brown, Andy Mills, Christopher Worth, and Ike Sreez-Kandaraja, with editing help from Larissa Anderson. Lisa Tobin is our executive producer. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Brad Fisher is our technical manager. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. Special thanks to Peter Sale, Sam Dolnick, and Michaela Bouchard. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you Monday. When a world leader in power solutions pioneers technology, anything is possible. Trains powered by hydrogen, kids taking zero emissions buses to school, earth movers driven by electricity, big engines made efficient by big data, face masks made from engine filter technology to help keep communities safe. This is Cummins Technology. Go to Cummins.com to discover how Cummins is always innovating for a world that's always on.